name is Anna Wynn, and this is Critical Literary Consumption. This is a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Questions that recur could include, what's the significance of a citation? What's the significance of a text? And, perhaps most importantly, I'm interested in exploring the tensions between the author, the reader, and the text. My guest today is Asoko Sarazawa. Asoko was born in Japan and grew up in Singapore, Jakarta, and Tokyo. She studied American and English literature, focusing on modernism and postcolonial literature and theory for her MA at Brown, and received an MFA in creative writing at Emerson. Her writing focuses on aesthetics and politics and their collusive impact and imaginative possibilities. Her first book, The Inheritors, was recently awarded the Story Prize Spotlight Award. Firstly, let's discuss your title and how it significantly relates and connects your stories that span 150 years, who inherits what, and who do you mean as the inheritors? I mean, I think that, you know, that's basically the central question, you know, like who inherits what, um, you know, who the inheritors are and, and sort of what the consequences are. The book sort of spans like over a century and um, basically traces five generations of one family, of a Japanese family, who are basically sort of scattered and, and you know, fragmented and scattered across Asia and the United States by the Second World War on the Pacific side. So on the macro level, it's trying to kind of look at like the ripple effects of history and particularly World War II, you know, on the Pacific side and the sort of impact like socially or politically, culturally, sort of across the decades, you know, and I guess environmentally too, like across the decades into the future, well, near future. But, you know, it's also about the roots of this war. So there's a family tree in the beginning of the book. And, you know, the the character that sort of starts this family tree is a character called Masayuki. And he's born in um, 1868, which is a pivotal historical date in Japan, where basically the power of governance was so-called restored to the emperor, you know, it really marks the beginning of Japan's sort of interest in Europe and Western ideas. This is the beginning of Japan's nationalization and sort of like this twin aspect, the imperial enterprise as well, you know, and that kind of paved the way into this war that's the center of this book. But really, you know, for me, the book starts with the epigraph, the Adorno and Horkheimer's quote, um, yet the fully enlightened earth radiates disaster triumphant. It kind of refers to that, you know, 17th and 18th century Western Enlightenment project and sort of like this so-called enlightened world that we've inherited. And this is sort of anchored down through the state of 1968 and the rise of the Meiji era. Meiji in Japanese, it comprises of two kanji and, and basically it means enlightened reign, reign as in rule, you know, so enlightened. And this is sort of grounded but down by this character, Masayuki, who was born that year, but he's kind of like a believer in science and technology and like the the sort of possibilities of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So then, you know, the book sort of traces the ripple effects of the intergenerational sort of impact of all of this on Masayuki's descendants. So that central question of who the inheritors are and who and what they're inheriting, you know, and what to effect is definitely, I think, Kind of central. And I think the last thing I'll say about the title is, 
you know, that the idea of inheritors, that subject, that preservation of the subject, you know, the subjectivity or the agency and the individual collective responsibility, that is sort of central to the book as well. Mm-hmm. So like I've told you offline, I've read your book twice now in its entirety. And and I try to be very careful because I know the way that you order things aren't very linear. So every time I start a new story, I go back to the family tree that you provide just to, so I can understand the relationships and, and any kind of trend, purposeful transitions that you're trying to apply. So can you tell me why, um, t- tell me the reason that you ordered I don't want to say fragmented because I think the, the stories all connect to get together, but there's no chronological linearity, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of people think about the conventional plot progression, I think. And you seem to subvert that. I think when you're writing about like, for example, like a lot of times I think this book would be considered historical fiction mm-hmm. or something like that. And because it, it's revolving around the Second World War. And, you know, I think that there is this kind of, you know, historical fiction as a genre especially as a commercial genre, I should mm-hmm. say, the task of it is to basically create this kind of like seamless world, you know, and as a reader, you're supposed to kind of drop into this kind of world, seamless world and have this immersive experience of a place in a bygone time. The, the assumption of that, it's, it's almost as though, you know, you're saying that, you know, history is this kind of thing that's reducible to these discrete events that have a clear beginning and a clear end, for Mm -hmm. example. And also this idea of history as something that is objectively there, you know, to be accessed and represented as though like history or, or that time or that place was there as a fact of some kind. And so there's no kind of historiographical investigation of any sort, you know? Mm -hmm. So Partly, this book is sort of meant to kind of write against that idea of the historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And because I'm kind of interested in the themes of the construction mm-hmm. of the narrative of history, you know, the historical narrative of World War II in this case, and to kind of bring in the larger context, which I think is essential to understanding that sort of history or that event. So this book is, in fact, an interconnected story collection, you know, mm-hmm. rather than a novel it spans this chunk of time, even though it revolves around the Second World War. And it has this kind of range of like forms and structures and styles, you know, not just having like multiple point of views, which a lot of historical fictions might have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this kind of general sort of non-linearity that kind of speaks to the, the interplay between history, memory, mm-hmm. and storytelling. I think I'm looking at like individual stories as a whole, as an autonomous thing, mm-hmm. and then the larger sort of macro level. Mm-hmm. And a big question is, you know, how can history be accessed? Mm-hmm. How can a story be accessed? How can these characters access their own stories of a time, how can I, as a Japanese writer writing in the 21st century, access this story from my position? So there's a lot of different things going on. One other thing I might want to say about that is, you know, it's kind of written against official national narratives of this history. Do you know what I mean? And they tend to be much more streamlined. And they're kind of like these instrumentally shaped thing that's sort of straightforward and linear and it has clear causes and effects, mm-hmm. clear beginning, middle and end to kind of tell a story that's for nation building. Mm-hmm. So 
I like the sense of playing with time, especially when, when you think about the conventional understanding of historical fiction, because your last two stories are set in the future, right? Mm-hmm. The, the time settings of the two stories, I thought was very remarkable to me because I think, was it the, the garden was is a penultimate story? It was set in 2035. And then right. the garden is pretty near future. It was 2024. <laughs> so could you tell me why you decided to put the 2030, uh, 2035 one before the 2024? So maybe one way to answer this is to say that for every story, I had this kind of investment in um, soliciting the active reader engagement, you know, rather than this kind of passive consumption of the mm-hmm. stories. And this is kind of true of the larger book, I think. So echolocation, which is set sort of before the garden, but mm-hmm. then sequentially it's the opposite, you know. So echolocation ends with a series of questions. In other words, it kind of places the readers in this position of having to answer them. So it's kind of soliciting that question, you know, that answer from the reader. Whereas if you put the garden at the end, then essentially what you're doing is the book is sort of positioning the reader very differently in that sense and kind of asserting answers in a way that I didn't think was productive for this Mm -hmm. particular book, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. about sort of, well, what do you think about it? (laughs) You know? Yeah. I asked like, the um, questions about time because, like I had mentioned in my um, research group, a lot of my colleagues and fellows um, who are studying sci-fi or want to study sci-fi seem to romanticize the sense of fragmentation time. And temporality has been something, a, a recurring word. And I just want to be clear that I don't have a criticism on people who want to study sci-fi to say something like a larger critique about the possibilities of futures and the plurality of the visions of the future. But I think when people get obsessed with the techniques of the futures, like the material, just on the science and technology, and they forget about the society or the people making the visions, many good scholars and writers do write about that to advocate for better futures and better possibilities as a form of justice. But what I find peculiar is that people use old sci-fi as a template to study better tech ethics or better governance that involves only the science or the technology. When I read your last two stories, I find them as, an, as, um, as you critiquing this kind of future in which science and technology has become part of the world, but you're asking for a sense of representation and justice. And I think that's, that's how I would read good sci-fi. Mm. In Elo echolocation where you wrote, and I quote, once upon a time, people thought robots would take over the earth or take people's job, but poor people still have to manufacture things. And I think that's still um, a really timely statement, especially in the current context of 2021 and Amazon and, you know, rich capitalists, venture capitals. When you wrote your two future tales, what, what were your aims in making the vision quite near and distant in the future, but that the problems remain the, the same things that we're dealing with? Mm-hmm. I'm going to answer these in different components. Yes. It's interesting because, you know, I definitely use um, sci-fi tropes, like the, the technology, for example, in yeah. the garden and all of this. But I don't know that I would necessarily call that story sci-fi. And I think partly it's because I'm kind of interested in the in the transitional moment where things are still fluid and we haven't moved from one world 
to another world, like a future mm-hmm. world, for example. And I mean, maybe there aren't, it, that demarcation isn't always clear and maybe mm-hmm. it can't be clarified, but I think in most sci-fi, I think we see it already situated in that future world of it in another space, alternative mm-hmm. space. So I'm kind of interested in that sort of transitional narrative, the transitional time, because that's where there is space for maybe some kind of agency, whether that's individual or collective. And so I don't want to close that that off. I think you're right about like the fact that, I mean, I do think one thing that's great about sci-fi as a genre is, is its critique of tech ethics, as you said, and this kind of in, impact on the possibility of a just and free society. But, you know, the other arm to this, in my mind, is sci-fi as a critique of this kind of imperial and colonial enterprise, you know, whether it's the sci-fi that that literally is about colonizing another planet or civilization or a segment of the human population. And besides the last two stories, I think that the whole book is kind of like the examination of the role of of science and Mm -hmm. technology and this kind of enlightenment privileging of these Mm -hmm. things in nation building Mm-hmm. in the justification of imperialism and colonialism and even the spread of democracy. Technology and science is, is central to mil- the military mm-hmm. and obviously war is central to yeah. the spread of democracy and things like that, mm-hmm. you know. I think maybe this goes back to the, your previous question too. So Garden is sort of looking at, it's set close enough, far enough but close enough that you kind of see our current world within it it's just kind of pushed to a more extreme, but it's not like it's unrecognizable, I would hope. And, you know, I think echolocation, again, ending with that story, you know, that story is kind of about alternative ways, what happens, mm-hmm. because like our whole empirical sort of understanding of the world, this kind of ocular way of um, understanding the world, this kind of enlightenment privileging of science and technology and reasoning, you know, rationality. Mm -hmm. All of these have kind of broken down. And here's this character who is navigating this world and trying to find another navigation tactic, another way that's not so ocular Mm-hmm. and empirical, more about maybe echolocation, like listening. I'm sure you've seen on Twitter and elsewhere that people are really critical of the news that President Biden has bombed Syria, you know, and so all of the science, technology, and democracy, I think they're connected. The stories and the answers you've provided, I think, just tells us time and again that all this um, technology is used to for violent reasons, for violent takeovers and imperialism. And I'm glad that you brought all that up because that was in my next question, um, that there's this sense that not even messy anymore. I just think it's very obvious that science and technology play a very important, vital, visible role in democracy and nation building. Your first story, Flight, uh, Yumi's father, um, you mentioned this, and I know it was very innocuous and fleeting, but it really struck me that you wrote that Ayumi's father admired a boat because he's a lover of technology. And then I contrasted that that moment of him marveling at a boat as um, a contrast on the progression of technology in the last two stories that you provided because he talked a lot about uh, Wikipedia and how they communicated um digitally. And at the end of the garden, when Aaron and Mai are working at the high school project, you brought up the term Anthropocene. 
a concept which ends your book where Maya is asking Aaron if humans will bring about the end. My question to you is, did you purposely end on a note of rhetorical despair? And what was, I think this is, you had alluded to it earlier that you you wanted to end the inheritors with questions for the reader. I don't know that it ends with a rhetorical <laughs> despair. You know, I think it's it, rhetorically, I think it ends with, a question are we going to bring up you know the end and, and are we going to are, are we going to do this are we really going to bring this about I asks this question three times yep. you know and mm-hmm. and really I think it's the book's question to the reader like are mm-hmm. we going to really do yeah and not do anything yeah, yeah. It, instead of ending with the garden in 2000 and what was it 35 35 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it ends, you know, with echolocation, which is closer to us, you know, t- 2023 or four. Mm-hmm. Because I think that at this moment, we're at another critical juncture, it mm-hmm. seems, you know, I mean, I don't know, every age may think this about their own age, you know, but it feels like there is this moment. I mean, we're having a pandemic and certainly, you know, digital security, things like this is becoming an issue and all this. I mean, we're at a moment where I think we have to think, as you were saying earlier about this kind of tech ethics, for example, like the the questions that Mm sci-fi asks, which I think is the impulse to go in that direction at the end of the book. It's not my main genre, but I read quite a few sci-fi. And I think in recent memory, I think the stories and the inheritors are the only one that doesn't separate the science from the technology or the technology from the science. And I actually really appreciate that as someone who is in a program on science and technology studies in society. The reason why I'm going back to literature, I I used to be more of like, I don't know, media analysis, I suppose, but I've gotten back to literary analysis. And I think there's something to be said about people who rely too much on headlines to to direct their research. It's not that it's not necessary, but I think there are other forms of text that offer a different take that say a, a headline from New York Times can't mm-hmm. offer. I want to teach your book in like whenever I teach a science and technology <laughs> literary course, I would like to teach your books to remind um, students that if you do separate science from technology and technology from science, why, when you have this book or these stories that remind you that they're connected and the connection is how they used to colonize or uh, make mm-hmm. promises of, of futures. And I think all that's very salient in your in your many stories. So well, thank you. <laughs> I think we've touched upon some of these themes previously, but I want to focus on some particular attention to your themes of colonization and recolonization and how your focus on democracy and justice calls attention to your questioning of nationalism and American empire as critical narrative building. In one story, we find out that Luna's father is not Japanese, but is actually Korean and was adopted by a Japanese couple. He tells Luna that identity is not a choice, and it is important to know one's roots in history, even in the colonizer's perspective. And I find this recurring sentiment in a lot of diasporic narratives, but you appear to be subverting this genre, at least in my interpretation and reading of it. Are you, do you think? I, hmm, I don't know if I would maybe say it's subverting necessarily. I mean, maybe complicating might be a better, yeah, better I mean, word, or at least in my mind, you know, this idea of knowing one's roots and to know oneself and like mm-hmm. one's place in the world and, and even one's place in the, the national body. 
Mm-hmm. There's a character, Luna, in mm-hmm. an early story, and it's her father's view. And mm-hmm. that story set in, um, I think, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And so that's a view that was um, something that was kind of accepted at that time. And this is kind of complicated and, I guess, interrogated later on when we see Luna again in a different story she's an adult and this is sort of set around 2009 or 10 mm-hmm. but she kind of questions the link between place and blood and language and um, identity mm-hmm. and sort of her attachment to you know her geographic um, her national and her sort of ethnic roots in this way like are they linked you know, what does that mean? She does have this kind of attachment, as you said, to this kind of diasporic narrative that kind of links these things together and to this identity of herself as like maybe a diasporic Japanese rather than, let's say, American. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that my characters find the answers. I mean, I think yeah. they make choices, but they mm-hmm. don't find the answers. And so maybe this is where I would say that it's complicating, you know, that narrative rather than subverting it, Mm -hmm. particularly. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And um, I was curious, Luna's mother, she, she a white? Yeah, she's white. Okay, so I assume, like I said, I've read your novels twice. And I was afraid that I had missed some details, but I think that your work is so stunning because you don't, I don't think, did you ever directly say that? I just kind of assume because Luna keeps having this kind of, and when we were first introduced to her, she's a little child, you know, and she's trying to make yeah. sense of her father's announcement and why he decided to do what he did. And um, I just, I think the first time I read that story, I read it three, four times because I thought oh I had missed something. No, I just thought that I had missed something. But I think it's just the way you write is so, um, it doesn't baby the reader, but I actually think that my intuition was some sometimes right, and, but I wasn't sure because it's just sometimes the details don't need to be all there for it to um, make a really strong narrative. I always like to critique academics, so I found it really interesting that you need <laughs> Luna, her father, as academics. And I found it particularly of interest to me that you end the story Luna with telling the reader she's learned words like biculturalism and fracture as part of the conceptual language we use to understand complex narratives. Could you elaborate on your thinking here about um, thinking about writing literary text and using and critiquing academic conceptual language at the same time? You know, academic language has this kind of heuristic quality, you know, and this kind of hermeneutic like value in this way, right? And as you said, I think that it can be really powerful in the way that you can understand an experience, a position. Um, Certainly, I think in this book, it helps the characters sort of name and define and identify an experience, especially if it's an experience um, that they're having where there may not be a, a language or a space in the kind of dominant context in which they are, you know, and mm-hmm. so you can kind of help them articulate to themselves at least like what this is about and make sense of, as you said, like these complex sort of experiences. But, you know, at the same time, I do think that academic language can kind of do this thing of explaining away. It's a disciplinary or disciplined language that's also disciplinary when yes. disciplining, you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always count maybe 
the lived experience, like the surplus of this mm-hmm. kind of complex feelings, for example, it kind of puts things into boxes, you mm-hmm. know? And so what happens to that surplus? Like, what if you don't fit into this box? Or what if your experience doesn't fit into this at all? You know, mm-hmm. there's something inelastic about that. And I think that these characters are academics. I think both the father and the daughter um, come up against the limits of academic language and also mm-hmm. academia as an institution, I think. And uh, there's a wrestling with that, I think. This book is not autobiographical at all, but you know, there's a way in which I thought a lot about this because I began in sort of more of an academic setting, you know, where I was studying literature and I really thought that that's the direction I was going to go in. And I kind of mm-hmm. made this unexpected turn before I embarked on this whole fictional project. It was kind of like, what can fiction do? What can that space do that academic spaces don't allow? Mm-hmm. And finally, I think there was this different kind of freedom. I mean, not to say that fiction or any kind of writing is free at all, you know, right. but um, it allowed for more combinations, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting that you're talking about what it means to use conceptual academic language in writing fiction, because um, I don't think it was in my chat with Kieze. It was probably a different conversation he had. He was making a very poignant critique on when people use terms that they've learned from academic texts and citations, mm-hmm. that it's not always to explain some sort of social phenomena, but it's actually tr- to be harmful in some sense. I'm not sure if he meant like whether we're trying to perform some sort of superiority in our language practices or that we oh. take for granted like these these terms as if they have a definite answer. And I think what you were saying with the elasticity or malleability of language, I think you can't just use the language and because it, it doesn't capture everything that we want it to capture. I've been trying to read texts that aren't too theoretical because it's sometimes you get trapped in that language and and I, I think that they're as limiting as everything else that we've right. come to realize about the world. And I think that and sounds yeah. sobering to a lot of people, but I think realistically, people who read texts, it's just kind of new ways of seeing the world, but it, it shouldn't be the definite answer. And I think that's what I'm seeing in this kind of academic um, crisis this kind of epistemic crisis, I think either they have realized or are in denial that we're not sure what we want from academic language, but we keep it alive because it's been so revered and and we don't know what could replace this kind of conceptual language. But I think that's also why sociologists have turned to this literary studies because there's Mm -hmm. a sociological phenomenon of studying literature and writing their own literary fictions, you know? So it'll be interesting to see how how um, literature departments might teach social theory or social theory teach literature as social theory. So, I mean, I think it, it's definitely become more that way, I think, you know, and I think I would like to see more of that language come into creative writing, for mm-hmm. example, where it's still so much craft-based, yeah. you know, and because for me to write, I mean, talking about academic language and its uses and, and value, I think really it it can help you make frames mm-hmm. and that frame can be limiting for sure. And it can be kind of disciplining. Right. But I think that um, it can also provide important lenses. I mean, you can't just think about craft mm-hmm. in my mind. 
Right. You know? well, or at least I can't. Right. Right. Um, you know, and I would like to see more of that kind of come into mm-hmm. that area, I think. In your author's note, you write that many pieces are references or are inspired by direct conversations with mm. other texts. You mentioned um, Japanese short stories and Borges, The Guardian of Forking Path, and other engagement with scholarly and media perspectives. And I want to ask about your approach in writing this, because I think I think there's something to be learned in a, in a methodological sense for me and for people interested in using literature in their um, scholarly practices. That Why did you choose the pieces that you did? And what do you want your text, the pieces and inheritors, to be in conversation with? So I think that that portion of the author's note yeah. may be a little bit misleading. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, it, it isn't and it is, you know. I think I say this because this book took like over 13 years to actually research and write. And mm-hmm. for each piece, there was a whole bibliography. There's things that I looked at. In some ways, I mean, these pieces are definitely in conversations with these particular works that I listed, but it's not just that, you know? So for example, I think the one you mentioned, so I stand accused, that story is in conversation, I think I say, with the Jesus of the Ruins story Mm -hmm. by Ishikawa Jun. And so in post-colonial literature, there's this thing that people do where they reclaim and give sort of subjectivity to the colonized characters, you know, that are usually nameless or, you know, mad, like insane in the the primary canonical texts, you know, the Western ones. And so I'm talking about something like Jean Reese's White Sargassosi or Katsie's. So Ishikawa Jin's um, Jesus of the Ruins, that story, there's a narrator who is like this scholar and the object of interest and the central um, character in this story is this war orphan who is nameless. And I mean, he's just like this object, literally an object, you Mm -hmm. know, of interest. And so partly for I Stand Accused, it was kind of to try to write from that perspective, to kind of reclaim that perspective, that character who has been rendered completely nameless mm-hmm. and, and really lifeless, you know, not contextless, you know. Yeah. So I stand accused. It's written in this kind of witness testimonials. And part of the issue with reclaiming a perspective like that is to ask the question, like, how can I access this story? Mm-hmm. And so I stand accused is written in these ways, these uh, witness reports, partly because police witness reports are one way yeah. that you can access such a person's mm-hmm. story, you know. So in that sense, the, that story is very much articulated or, or in conversation with that piece. But there's a larger sort of scheme mm-hmm. to this as well, you know. You made a distinction in your author notes and your other interviews and just in the conversation now that we're having that um, you seem to reject the historical fiction and you you don't consider this autobiographical in any sense, right? Um, With a strict sense anyway, yeah. Yeah. When we're talking about theories versus lived experiences, do you think that you combine those these different binaries into the book? Could there be stories about your memories of your family or who, who you've talked to or as kind of um, shaping a sense of oral history or at least in terms of providing some sort of research for your writing process? 
I mean, I think that, you know, the binary, that binary of history written, like a narrative of history and lived experience, for example, I think that binary is the thing that is what I'm, what I question, I think, or at least I wanted to question in mm-hmm. the book, you know, and, and I think this is why there is the range of structures and forms and styles mm-hmm. that I use, because in a way, it's like, I don't want the readers to forget that this is fiction, right. and that these stories are shaped in these ways, because mm-hmm. we talk about lived experience, but what are we talking about? You know, it's narrative still, or it's, it's already memory, which means it's narrativized in this way. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that you can get away from that. I think when I say that it's not autobiographical, I mean that my family never told stories at all. Yeah. You know, it was like, I this think you said science. that in one of your interviews, I remember distinctly, I'm like, do we share the same kind of parent? <laughs> my parents, you know, they don't really talk about their time in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And what you said sh- struck a chord, because sometimes they'll say something, but Sometimes it's so out of context, out of the blue. I, I don't understand what I heard. And I think, yeah, I'm sorry for yeah. interrupting. No, no, no. I think that that's it, you know. And I think, and, and it's funny because in Japan, they never talked about their experiences or anything, but World War II is ubiquitous. It comes up in conversation. It comes up on the news. Like it's still a very much a live wire in, in Asia. So it's constantly around. And yet there's a way in which people don't talk about it, you know. And I think... That was kind of the mystery of it. I mean, there was definitely this sense of taboo around it. A lot of the literature that is around sort of history, writing of history, the narratives of history, and kind of like the interplay between history, memory, and storytelling, and maybe like just this kind of silence, you know? Like I think of immediately of somebody like W.G. Sebald, who writes kind of like these circuitous narratives that really kind of deeply engages with these issues, you know. I think the other thing would be the kind of something like war responsibility, maybe individual collective agency. These are things I think that shape the way places that we're silent and places where we do speak or remember. And so I think about like, you know, maybe post-war German writers who really engage with these issues. There are some Japanese writers too. You know, Shusaka Endo is, is somebody who who is very much about the ethics part of the, the agency and responsibility. Um, there's Kinzaburo Oe. There's a newer writer. Oh, here we go. Yeah, so there's this book, Hideo Furukawa. Oh, yeah, okay. Horses, horses. Mm-hmm. In the end, the light remains pure. So this book, for example, like he's very much engaged, I think, in this topic. There are different ways to kind of contextualize the book, I think. Mm-hmm. So, Kodi, do you read literature in Japanese too? I typically don't. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm engaged with the, the English textual world. Mm-hmm. So am I. I was just curious because um, now that you brought up Japanese and post-colonial theory, I'm, I'm thinking about who I was taught as counting, you know, counted as post-colonial theorists. And I don't think Japan ever came up. Japanese writers. And so and anyways, I only yeah. asked because that just brought brought back to this kind of like canonical text and then academic language and who gets left down the periphery. But, but just Yeah, no, it's that's really interesting because the only um quote unquote, you know, Japanese writer, Ishiguro, yeah. mm-hmm. 
And uh, so in my postcolonial class way back, for some reason, Remains of the Day was being taught. And I thought that that was such an interesting way to look at that book mm-hmm. from a postcolonial perspective. But mm-hmm. beyond that, no. And I don't know, Japan occupies this strange position anyway, you know, because mm-hmm. it was an imperial power in Asia, mm-hmm. you know, and yet like there's also vis-a-vis like the Western or the European side mm-hmm. of things. There's a colonial aspect too, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm um so I speak Vietnamese quite fluently, but I don't think I could read a text in Vietnamese and then analyze it. I'm just not taught in that language skill, you know, and I speak to my mother every day in Vietnamese and she'll tell me about books she's reading. She doesn't really read and speak in English very well, but I feel like that's been my fault too, especially that I'm only engaged with the Western theoretical language and not <laughs> no I, I, yeah I feel the same way and, and that's exactly it like I'm fluent in, in Japanese but in terms of I mean that that academic or or other kinds of languages non-daily mundane language yeah. is kind of specialized in this way and I think it's different it's difficult in, in other yeah. ways too you know yeah. I like to end on the topic of the Asian violence that we've been seeing in America Um, In Luna's follow-up story, Passing, she's back in Japan after her father passes away. And there are a few sentences I'd like to bring attention to. That she was thinking about what it means to remember in one language and not in the mother tongue. And the notion of belonging in America as an Asian. Luna observes that in America, the tendency is to look at black and white. This is a recurrent statement um, in a lot of Asian writers that Asians somehow are still... They're in between. Like we're not really sure where to place Asian experiences and um, violence. And because of the visibility of the increased violence targeting Asians, especially in elderly Asians in America, we've seen the solidarity discourse include them. And so I wanted to ask about how your stories that deal primarily with experiences of trauma from China, Japan, and Korea, and then the eventual aftermath of the trauma in America. How would you situate the novel now? Maybe I'll reframe that a little bit to say that, you know, the experience of trauma from China or Japan or Korea, um, you know, I think America is is just intimately part of that production of that trauma, you know, that kind of cleaves together and apart everyone from these places, you know, whether they're in the U.S. or not. In terms of this question of how I might situate the book. Um, I think in the context of your uh, question, because there's another context for the book, which is East Asia, and the book will be completely different in that context, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that the book will kind of, in that sense, add to the many reminders that are out there that this kind of anti-Asian violence or racism, you know, isn't new, Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it certainly has a long history and right. it's systemic and, it, and ultimately structural. I think on that front, solidarity as praxis in particular, I think is absolutely and literally vital in so many ways. But discourse and, and practice aren't always coterminous, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think the characters in the book kind of grapple with that because the danger is that solidarity discourse can kind of elide or obscure or maybe subsume 
differences that are important to keep in mind because mm-hmm. like different communities have different needs you know that you hope are addressed these are all important things to kind of hold in the mind at the same time right and yeah. because i think the racisms are different you know it's plural yeah. racisms mm-hmm. with asian americans or asians in, in america asian americans i guess this belonging thing this perpetual foreigner thing that's a whole other kind of thing you yeah. know and it's dangerous because it's if you're a perpetual foreigner depending on like if there a war breaks out or something or pandemic whatever it is mm-hmm. it's easy to be like oh here's this kind of foreigner you know yeah. we can just round them up and stick them in internment camps and this isn't particular just to asian americans as a group but like mm-hmm. any kind of ethnic groups that are minority groups that are perpetual foreigners Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time. Music